Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are going through judges, and uh, we are going to be talking about a judge that uh, some people say I look a lot alike, but I think it's just because of my build, not because of my hair. Um, Samson? You guys all, right? No. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about Samson, and Samson is a judge where I can joke about that, and you guys sort of know what I'm talking about, because a lot of people know about Samson, and I think that's because he's uh, one of the characters in the Bible that we actually get a lot of information about. We get, uh, really, uh, the writer of Judges devotes three whole chapters to Samson, and we learn everything from before he was born until his demise. And so we see a lot more of his story than maybe some of the other people that we learn about. And as a result, um, there's a lot more stories about him that get kind of carried along. And so we're going to dig in to that today. And I think one of the things that we're going to see right out of the gate is this um, this other thing that we're familiar with. And it's it's kind of one of those things where it gets a little disheartening as we're going through Judges where every single piece starts off with, again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see that picture happening over and over of that cycle of sin. And we also talked about in the beginning of this series, remember how that's that tension between it's also a cycle of God's redemption. And both things are at work and true. And when we sort of look at the humanness of God's people, we seem to see their sin. They keep messing up. They keep sort of going the wrong direction, doing the wrong thing, getting farther from God. And yet there's this simultaneous story of God continuing to be at work to redeem and restore his people. And so we're going to mess with that tension a little bit even more today. But I think one of the reasons that people can get a little disheartened about digging into the text and and reading particularly Old Testament stories and reading different stories throughout the scriptures is it does get a little bit, um, it feels a little hopeless. Like one, sometimes it's difficult to understand. Two, it's like the more I read the stories, the more it seems like they're just a bunch of stories of people that keep messing up. And it's a little bit like, who wants to watch a movie if you know it's going to have a terrible ending? It's like, if somebody tells me the movie's got a bad ending, I'll never watch it. Because I'm like, I don't want to end on a downer, right? Like, And that sort of feels like so many of the stories. But I think what's important for us to remember is we're really, really wise to focus on uh, God throughout the ups and downs with God's people as we read these stories, and particularly in Judges, that as we focus on God, we learn about his character and his nature and what God is like when his people are up, when his people are down, what God is like with their enemies. How does God respond and react to the different circumstances instead of getting lost in the hopelessness of the people? side of some of the stories. And so this uh, story that we're going to get into, the text about um, Samson, is full of really cool, rich details about who God is and what God's like. And so it starts off in Judges chapter 13. And so if you've got a Bible, look there. Or if you've got, uh, as Doug calls them, swipey Bibles. If you're swiping on your phone, get Judges 13 there. Um, It starts off like this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So uh, So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. So again, this familiar start. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And 40 in the Bible is the number of judgment and completion. And so for these 40 years... 
God's people were under the rule and tyranny of the Philistines. And the Philistines were bad. Now, really bad. And one of the things that I think I just want to kind of clear up, and then I'll let you guys have some fun to chase some stuff on your own outside of here, is when we think of the Philistines, when I say they're really bad, don't think like ignorant caveman-like fighting with clubs, right? The Philistines were super sophisticated. Uh, They were uh, archaeologists and historians have determined that they were some of the most advanced uh, people and civilization of their time. They uh, were the first ones to work with iron, and pioneered working with iron. They used uh, um, battle formations. They were building multi-story buildings and engineering bridges when the cultures and civilizations around them looked more like Bedouin travelers and sheep herders, right? Like they were advanced and sophisticated in their uh, economy and their civilization and their military. Um, The other thing you need to know about the Philistines is that they were incredibly wicked and evil, like not just a little bit. They were incredibly bad. And so when you think about Philistines or you read stories about them, probably it's a little bit more accurate to kind of get in your mind's eye a picture of a horrible, vicious Viking as opposed to like a farmer with a sword, if you're following me. They were known for their parties and their debauchery. They invented a thing called the Mista, which is a week-long drinking fest. And we thought that came up at college, right? Like they invented that. They uh, were really, really wicked and uh, violent in the way that they would conquer towns and villages. People unlucky enough to survive an attack were tortured in unspeakable ways. And so when we think of the Philistines, really, I, th- I think in, in some sense, they represent the enemies of God at their very strongest. And And so... Uh, in your notes, just for fun, uh, if you want to, there's some info there about an article that uh, some archaeologists and historians have kind of dug up all this information on the Philistines and their culture and their civilization, and there's a couple of ways for you to find it just for fun if you like to just like to learn. So there you go. Uh, back in the, in the text, chapter 2, or chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, in those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even, if you have, even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So right out of the gate, there's some important stuff that we can kind of unpack from just these opening verses and start learning a little bit more about kind of our own salvation and the way God brings salvation to any person. Um, first of all, the things that we don't see. The, one of the things that we don't see between verse 1 and verse 2, it, it starts off, right? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then right away, verse 2, an angel of the Lord is coming to this man's wife. And so it's like, they're not on track. God's bringing about redemption. And if we recall along the way, it, it, remember back with Gideon, when we saw Gideon and his story, the people were uh, being oppressed and they cried out to the Lord for help. But we talked about how maybe they weren't really repentant, but they didn't really like their circumstances. So they were at least crying out for help. Now, all of a sudden, we see that the, they're kind of away from that so much that they're not even crying out for help. There's no repentance. There's no pleading for help. And all of a sudden, God sends them. Uh, it starts to come to them to intervene, which is unique. Um, 
And I think what we are seeing play out right here at the beginning of the story with Samson is that, that in this circumstance, if God's people are going to be saved, it's not because they're seeking him. Right? God, uh, he actually seeks them first. He initiates. He sends the angel of the Lord to this woman, Manoah's wife. And the next thing we don't want to miss in these kind of opening verses is that this is the first time a judge is promised uh, before he's even born. You know, prior to this, Gideon, uh, he was nothing too special, this kind of nobody in a wine press. And the Lord says, you're a mighty man of valor and works with him and is patient with him and, and helps lead him to rescue his people. And then we kind of go through some other judges and then we get to what Gary preached about last week, Jephthah. And when you look at Jephthah, it's really hard to imagine anything redeeming about him. Like when we think of the words of the Chronicle that says that they scan the whole earth to and fro, looking for someone whose heart is committed to the Lord so that God can give them strength or, or, or support them. It's hard to think, like, you looked over the whole earth and Jephthah was it. Like, that was the only, like, there must have been just a sliver of heart committed to the Lord when you look at him and his story. And yet, when we get to the time of Samson, it's almost like God's saying, at this point in Israel's story, there's now not even a Jephthah among you. Like there's just like, I have to start from scratch as opposed to try and work with someone remaining among you. Uh, Another thing is that this is a promise that's given to a barren woman. And we've learned about barrenness before, but in the ancient world, barrenness, the ability not to be able to have kids for a woman was the ultimate devastation. Uh, for a family, this was terrible. It was absolutely a, a tragic sense of hopelessness for them because there's no 401k, there's no retirement plan. Like if you're going to survive, if you're going to be taken care of in your old age, if your family lands or business is going to be passed on, it's only through a child. And so, so we see God brings this promise to a woman who had no hope of even a, a, a future for children or passing on a heritage. And so there's another odd thing that we see in the verses, and we'll, this kind of remains the same through the whole story, is we see Manoah's name, the, the dad, and we see the town they're from and the tribe they're from, and we'll get other details along the way, but we never find out the name of the woman. She remains anonymously the woman and Manoah. And so there's some fun things to dig in and study about that on your own. So if we sort of just pause and unpack that and talk about like what can we learn about our own salvation from just these opening verses, the things that we're seeing and learning about God, I would say one really important thing that if you get anything from the story of Samson, this is probably one of the most important things. It's that, that God brings his salvation to people who aren't crying out in repentance. God brings his salvation to people who are not crying out in repentance. I mean, Paul, you remember his wrote, words that he wrote. He said, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So, so God brings his salvation to people who don't have hope, who aren't crying out. And we see that bear out in this story. But it's even more than just an invitation. Like a, like a, it's more than just God coming to people who aren't repentant yet, who aren't crying out yet. It, it, God actually seeks them out, finds them, and invites them. 
And, and probably no better place do we see this actually uh, transpire real literally than with Jesus as he went and called disciples. So we see Jesus uh, at one point walking along the Sea of Galilee. He is out looking as he goes for disciples. He sees Peter and Andrew, these brothers who are fishing, and he finds them. They didn't find him. He finds them and he calls them to come and follow him. Famously in uh, Matthew 4, 19, says that he said to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And some translations more people are familiar with say man, fishers of men. And that's just indicative of all people. You're, you're gonna, your mission is everyone out there. I'm gonna teach you how to fish for all people out there. And so it's more than just Jesus and God finds people who are not looking for him, but God invites them to come and follow him. And more than just like, hey, it's okay to know me, he's inviting them into this apprenticeship, this mentorship, this like discipleship relationship so that they can be uh, devoted to learning who God is and what it's like and have him as a mentor to follow and learn from. And so the invitation really explains to us, like, what does it mean to really be a disciple? He says, follow me, right? So a true disciple of Jesus is following Jesus. A, a disciple of Jesus answers that, uh, that call. And then another thing about a disciple of Jesus is that he says, I will make you. And so a disciple of Jesus is being changed by Jesus, and then lastly, he says that uh, he'll make you uh, fishers of people. And so a disciple of Jesus is someone who is on mission with Jesus, in lockstep, like caring about what he cares about, doing what he does, right? And, and so I would just say one of the things I think a lot of Christians or a lot of believers understand is that if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to become a Christian, there's this stepping out in faith, answering the call when Jesus finds you to come and follow him, and you're, you're answering the call to follow him. And I think people sort of get like, yeah, I know that's part of it. That makes sense. And I think people actually kind of intuitively understand on the other side of it, the other bookend, that when you're following Jesus... Your life is changing. It's becoming about something new. Like you're going to be on mission. You have new direction and purpose. And as you grow with him, you learn more about what that is. Where I think a lot of people struggle is the meat in the middle. The part where he says, I will make you. Where it means being a disciple of Jesus is in large part this process of being changed by Jesus. And it doesn't really sit super awesome with a lot of us because we really like to change us. We like to be the boss of ourselves. We like to decide what we want to work on, when we want to work on it, what we don't want to touch, what we don't want to work on, right? And there's a... There's so much evidence that this is the case. There's literally billion dollars in industry of self-help books and podcasts and how to work on yourself, TV shows, and, and it's because we like to be in control of us. And so we're on board with like, being a Christian means you're following Jesus. We're on board with being a Christian means that there's some purpose and direction for your faith and for your life. But when it comes to the meat and potatoes of like day to day, I wanna be in charge of me. And the problem with that is when we don't, rightly understand that it's Jesus that changes us. When we still hang on to this old world view that, that we change us, it starts to leak out on the way we see other people. 
And so now as we see other people, we look at people who have driven their life into the ditch four or five times, you know, and if you look at their life as a car, it's got quite a few scratches and dents and it's a bit of a wreck, right? You know, like you got somebody that just popped in your head. And we automatically start thinking about them, things like, and sometimes we're rude enough to say it out loud, and sometimes we just say it in our own head, right? And we start thinking or saying things like, oh my gosh, are they ever going to get it together? How come they can't figure it out by now? Like, seriously, I did it. Grow up already, right? Like, how come you can't do that? Right? And what we're doing is we're, we're projecting onto them our belief that in order to fix your life, in order to change your life, you have to do it. And all of a sudden, we say we're following Jesus, but we're not actually preaching the gospel, It's not Jesus. We're not saying, hey, Jesus, we need to introduce you to Jesus because Jesus will change you, will make your life different, will give you purpose and direction. Do you understand? And so the thing about that way of thinking and wrestling with that is it's not really that much different than the way the Pharisees thought. The religious leaders of the day in Jesus' time were really not keen on the way Jesus did ministry and who he spoke to and who he hung out with and who he built relationship with because the Pharisees and religious leaders of the day looked at those people as the people who can't get their life together, who are unclean, who are never going to be right, who seriously, you can't figure this out by now. Like, and. And they would watch and observe, and there was a time where Jesus went and ate with what it says in the text are sinners and tax collectors, a.k.a. the worst people you could think of. That's the way they could say it at the time. Like, this is the worst of the worst is who you're hanging out with. And so he goes and eats with sinners and tax collectors, and they're watching him and observing him, and it's driving them insane because it's like you, you're spending time with people who are unlovely, messy, unclean, unfixable, can't get it together, are never going to be any better. It's like you're spending time with people who are a waste of time. Essentially, is they're, like they're just looking down on them for so many reasons, and they didn't actually like Jesus' answer when they highlighted this fact for him. They, they actually says in the text that they, they said, why, they scoffed at him and said, why are you eating with such scum? Gives you an idea of, uh, you know how sometimes you think it in your head, but you don't say it out loud? They said it out loud, right? So in Mark 2.17, we see Jesus' reply to them. He says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who, are, who think they are righteous, but those who know that they're sinners. Which means if, if it's one of those rare people out there in the world who genuinely, wholeheartedly thinks that they are perfect, like sincerely believes it, that they've got it all together, they don't really need anybody or anything, and life is wired and they've got it all figured out, I'll, I'll tell you, for those rare people, I think God's going to let them kind of camp out with that for just a bit longer. But for people like probably most of us who come to realize pretty early in life, we're not perfect. We mess up. We make mistakes. And then we also like do wrong things on purpose sometimes. Like we've said and done things that are not true. We've said and done things that we regret that have hurt other people that we love and care about. We've said or done things that we definitely do not want our mom to know about. 
much less Jesus, right? And when you come to realize that, I think there's some sense of peace that can come to us because when we read the scriptures and we hear from Jesus' own words, we understand that like we're probably the most of us, the kind of people that Jesus came to call. These, we're the people that know, like, I, I'm not perfect. I, I'm far from it. And it's like, you're in the Jesus came to have lunch with you and invite you to follow him, gang. And so one of the things I think that is a really big deal that we're learning from judges and from Jesus is that, is that God is willing and able to find you long before you're ready to look for him. And I think that's a really big deal. God's willing and able to find you long before you're ready to look for him. And I, for me, that's really reassuring to know that God is willing and able to find people who are not crying out yet, who aren't repentant yet, who might not even be looking for him yet. Because I think probably most of us in this room, and I know for me and my own personal family and friend group, I have people that I love dearly and care deeply about who are not following Jesus, not interested in Jesus, not looking for Jesus, not crying out for help, think probably they don't actually need him at all. And I pray for them, and it can get discouraging to be someone that loves other people and wants them deeply to repent and come to know Christ, and you watch as they don't. And it can start to feel a little bit hopeless, and then I get into the scriptures and I remember who Jesus is, and I remember from stories like Judges of what God the Father is like, and I get reminded that God's a God that can go to people who aren't crying out. And that he's willing and able to come and find people that weren't even looking for him. And that gives me hope, and I hope it gives you some hope as well. Let's jump back into the story. Verse 4, this is the angel of the Lord talking to the woman and giving her some instructions. So he says, so be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth and he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So there's lots of cool stuff to unpack in here uh, about her, but we're going to just touch on the Nazarite vow. Uh, the Nazarite vow was a big deal. It was pretty significant, and so there's some characteristics of it that you should know about. You were not allowed to cut your hair ever while you were under this vow. Um, you were not allowed to drink anything from the vine in any way, shape, or form. So not only nothing fermented, so no alcohol, no wine, which or watered-down wine, which was kind of the normal run-of-the-mill drink of the day, and not even grape juice, like nothing from the vine, alcohol or not. So you become a milk-and-water kind of guy uh, or gal. Uh, you couldn't touch any dead bodies of any kind. And so I want you to just take those things and kind of put them in your, like, remember them for next week bucket, okay? Because they're going to come up as we learn more about Samson and watch how his life plays out. Remember that those are the, the traits of this vow. And understandably, when people would take a Nazarite vow, normally they wouldn't do it for very long because it was really strict. And so it was like they would do it for a short period of time while they were seeking the Lord uh, for direction or guidance on something. But what's interesting about Samson is he's committed to be a Nazarite before he's even born, not even by his parents, the angel of the Lord. Like God sends the angel of the Lord to give this instruction 
that he's to be committed to be a Nazarite from birth, which you can sort of understand like um, big commitment. So the woman hears all this stuff from the angel of the Lord. She goes to tell her husband. And as you might wonder, uh, how does he respond, right? Like, uh, honey, uh, a man came to me and he seemed to be really important and spoke with a lot of authority. Never met him before, but he said X, Y, Z. And you could think the husband's going to be like, uh, okay. Here's what's cool. Check out how he responds in verse 8. It says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord saying, Lord, please let the man of the Lord, uh, man of God come back to us again and give us more instructions about the son who is to be born. So Manoah prays. He asks the God, he asks God to send the man back. And I think one of the things that can happen is we can look at this passage and we can think a little bit like, um, geez, maybe Manoah didn't have great faith because like, the woman tells him something like this is what happened and all of a sudden he's going to the Lord kind of going like hey come back but it's really important that we look at exactly what he says because we can sit here and go like we can speculate and draw some put some of our assumptions on the text and go oh we think that Manoah is doubting his wife or we think that maybe Manoah was a guy that had little faith but I want us to just stick with exactly what's there and not guess anything. Because what's exactly there is that he heard his wife and the first thing he did was pray and ask God to send the guy back so that he could give him instructions about how to raise this son who he was 100% sure was coming. Like, there's no doubt eking out of him in any way, shape, or form. He is like, I just want to know what to do with him exactly when he gets here, right? And so he's looking for instruction. So the Lord answers his prayer, sends the man back, and again, the angel of the Lord shows up to the woman. And this time, the woman's like, time out. Uh, I'll be right back. My husband is really going to want to talk to you. I mean, once maybe, but twice, I don't know if he's going to be down with the, uh, the Lord told me. Like, come on back. So the angel waits, and she goes and gets her husband, and they go back together. Verse 11, Manoah ran back with his wife and asked, are you the man who spoke to my wife the other day? Yes, he replied, I am. So Manoah asked him, when your words come true, check that part out. When your words come true, pretty confident in the way he believes. When your words come true, what kind of rules should govern the boy's life and work? Well, the angel of the Lord replied, be sure your wife follows the instructions I gave her. Well, as you would imagine, that's not exactly the answer he was looking for. And and so Manoah is like, I'm praying, asking God for more guidance, more guidelines, more instruction. I need to know what, when, where, how. And he pleads with the angel, and the angel says, yeah, just, I already told her, do what he, do what she said. And he's thinking to himself, yeah, you just said he's supposed to be a Nazarite from birth, and he's going to begin saving Israel from the Philistines. Like, there's a lot of unanswered questions outside of those guidelines. So Manoah didn't give up easy. So he goes back to the angel of the Lord at the same conversation. He says, please stay and have a a meal with us, right? So he says, stay here until we can prepare a young goat for you to eat. And the angel says, I will stay, um, but I will not eat anything. However, you may prepare a burnt offering as a sacrifice for the Lord. He didn't realize that was the angel of the Lord that he was talking with. And it's like Manoah is kind of angling a little bit, like kind of vying for some rapport 
with this person, trying to go like, if I feed him, I'm hospitable, I throw out a big spread, like it's going to soften him up, like he'll see how kind I'm being to him, how honoring I'm being to him, and maybe he'll give me a little more info, right? And so then the next thing happens, they, they go to do that, and the angel's like, no, I'm not, I'm not down with that, because that would be like, we're going to be on equal terms, and we're not. So if you want to do anything, offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Well, Manoah, again, round two, doesn't get the answer he wants, but he does not give up easy. I think he would have made a great salesman because this guy wants to close, right? Like he's not giving up on the first, you know, he's not giving up on the second, no. He comes back with another one and he says, oh, sir, like tell me your name so that when all of these things come true, we can give you honor, and so it's like, I mean, I got to figure out my end with this guy. I got to get some rapport going with him. I got to get a little give and take. Like we've got to be, we've got to get together on this because he knows things that I need to know. And so he says, tell me your name. And he says, why do you want to know my name? It's way too good for you to know. Weird answer. And so Manoah kind of strikes out the third time and then the and then the Lord does something amazing the, they make their meal they set it out as a sacrifice and the Lord burns up the sacrifice with fire and this fire shoots way up in the air and the angel of the Lord this man who they were talking to uh, goes in the fire and rides the fire out super cool party trick definitely don't try it And they all of a sudden realize, like, oh my gosh, that was an angel of the Lord. Like, we have seen God somehow. And they hit the deck. They do what you see everybody in the Bible do when they see and recognize that they've talked to an angel or seen an angel. They freak out because apparently when you see an angel of the Lord, you wet yourself and fall on your face because it's scary. That's just what happens pretty much always. And so they hit the deck, and, and then this next exchange at the end of this is pretty interesting because I, I think what's funny is to imagine this as the way it would have really played out. Like, they freaked out. Manoah is responding. They says they fall down on their faces in the dirt, and then they're talking to each other. So it's a little bit like Manoah is laying on the ground, his face in the dirt, and he's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. We saw an angel, oh my God. He's hyperventilating, and he finally gets out. We're definitely gonna die freaking out to which his wife responds hey babe we're not dead smart lady this is why it's good for us to have wives guys she responds hey we're not dead she states the obvious and then she goes on to say why would God have given us this great miracle, this great promise? Why would God have accepted our offering? Why would this all have happened if he was going to get just going to kill us? And so we see the difference in the way that two different people respond and react to the same interaction with the angel of the Lord in the same circumstances. One's in panic, one's responds in fear and anxious and worry, and the other one is like, I just am going to look at the facts, and the facts are we're alive, and it doesn't make any sense, and so I'm just going to walk away from this believing that God said what he said. That's it. And she's like, I'm just going to start there. And it's pretty fascinating because I think a lot of us uh, respond differently when we're kind of having conversations with the Lord or feel like we're hearing from the Lord. And so um, let's keep chunking chunking along here. Uh, What I want to do is I want to camp out for a second with uh, Manoah. 
and his need for more information, more guidelines to clarify the rules, because I think that's something that probably, I know I really relate to, I think probably a lot of us, I think it's just kind of human nature. We uh, generally think that we are going to feel better about things if we have more information. Right? If we know all the details, we can make better decisions or we can you know, feel more comfortable about what's next or how to do this or how to do that. And, and, and that's exactly what Manoah was praying for. He asked God to send the angel of the Lord back so he could get more guidelines about how to, uh, what kind of rules would govern this future son's life and work. And so he's, he's pleading with God, like, this sounds like a pretty miraculous thing that you're doing to give us this son, and, and we want to make sure that we do it right. We don't want to screw up. We don't want to, like, how do we do it? We need the ultimate guidebook, right? And, and it's like the angel of the Lord, and God is speaking to him going, like, there is no guidebook alive with enough pages in it to give you the perfect parenting plan to be ready for all of the innumerable things that you're going to encounter as a parent, like, you just can't write it all down. And so God just keeps redirecting him away from his request for guidelines and towards, like, do you, you realize you're in the presence of the Lord? Like, like, what you need is to know God. What you need is to trust God, not more rules and, uh, and more guidelines and more details and and. The thing I think is, I know in my own life, there's so many times where I have been in kind of crisis situations or stressful situations and not knowing what to do next. And I know I spend a lot more time in my gut reaction to thing, uh, things, praying and asking God for like specifics as opposed to hanging out with God. Because it sort of feels, it feels like the opposite of what I should do. Like, I shouldn't be at peace just hanging out, sitting with God on the porch, whittling. I should be like getting some information. Like, I'm, my life's in a, a desperate situation, right? And I think a lot of us can do that. And when we look at Jesus and his disciples, and we see how they interacted with him, they did the same thing. They spent time with him, they got to walk with him, talk with him, eat with him, watch all those things happen, and yet they kept coming to him very often asking for direction, more details, like what's next, where are we going, how are we going to get there, who gets to be in charge of what, when they get to be in charge, who gets to sit where, like, I mean, they were just on and on and on about, we need more information, and Jesus kept doing what he was so good at doing, was just reorienting them back towards, like, it really is more about you knowing God than about you knowing what's next. And they reached a point in the story with their time with Jesus where he started letting them know that he was not going to be with them forever. He wasn't going to be forever, you know, every day. They weren't going to keep doing this. He actually started letting the cat out of the bag. Like, there's going to be a time, and it's coming pretty soon, where I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm actually going to go somewhere else, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, that produced a bit of panic, as you could imagine. And so there's like, well, what do you mean where are you going? And what do you mean we can't come? And why can't we come? And, and what are we going to do? And, and how are we going to do it? And all this stuff. And the way that Jesus responded to his anxious disciples, I think is really worthy of us noting. Because I, I just want to say that uh, recently, probably in this last month especially, 
because of deadlines with COVID stuff and vaccine stuff and job stuff going on in our uh, personal little town and our little world. It's happening everywhere. But people I know, people I'm talking to, people in our church uh, are experiencing a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety about what's next and relationship stuff and finance stuff and future employment stuff and career decisions and education decisions. And it on the heels of all the junk we've been through, it sort of feels like there it's bubbling up as I'm having a lot of conversations with people that there's a bit of more than the average stress and anxiety. And, and I just want to say, like, if you're in a spot where you are feeling that. You're feeling the like, you know what would really help me right now is more rules, more guidelines, more details. Like I need more information because right now with trying to figure out how to move with or how to go forward with what I know feels hopeless and you got a bit of a pit in your stomach and you're getting kind of tired of it. Like I want you to know that Jesus would say the same thing to you and I that he would have said to his disciples when they were anxious and worried and didn't know what was next. And so we're going to just do a little exercise together here as before we kind of just finish up. In your sermon notes, at the very end of your sermon notes there, you're going to see a passage that we put in there from the message, paraphrase, from John 14. And I put it in there because I just wanted to read it to us in a real just regular language, personal way. The way Jesus responds to his anxious, nervous disciples is with such kindness and compassion and empathy, like the same way that he wants to respond to you with everything that's going on in your life right now. And so the blanks that are in there, you just write your name there. Like actually go for it. Like make this to you, right? And so we're going to read it. So there's a blank there. And so for this, for example, this first one, it would be like that. Don't let this rattle you. Or Kirsten, don't let this rattle you, right? Uh, Scott, don't let this rattle you. So we make it personal. So don't let this rattle you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There's plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get a room ready, I'll come back and get you so you can live where I live. And you already know the road that I'm taking. Dad said, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? And Jesus said, I am the road. Also the truth, also the life. And nobody gets to the Father apart from me. And if if you really knew me, you would know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You've seen him. And I think so oftentimes we can read that and hear those words of Jesus in our own little voice in our head that sounds like Jesus is condemning and, and mocking and beating up his disciples. Like, seriously, you guys, you don't know this by now? Like, I mean, if you knew God, you would know, like, like getting a lecture, And that's not at all the heart of Jesus who loved deeply his disciples and loves deeply each of you. He's saying, like, I understand this is tough and I understand it's hard, but like, I don't know, like the best encouragement I can give you is that is that the way to know God is me. And the the cool part is, you know me. So I know it doesn't feel like you know the way, but you do. And he goes on in John to talk about abiding in the vine and remaining with 
Christ and he gives all this great concrete imagery about like stick tight with Jesus. It results in your obedience, like following God in a right way, which reveals your love for him, which reveals that you're good with doing the following God in a right way. And, and he just goes on with this really cool picture of like when, when you stick tight with Jesus, you're on track. And I just want to finish, uh, we're going to have a time of worship and, and just finish with this, but it just, one of the things I think that's really important for us to recognize is that Paul says that if you're going to follow Jesus and believe in him, there's this process, there's kind of these two parts. Like he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. Now, and both of those are really important elements. I think a lot of people believe and few confess. Because it's all of a sudden really real when it comes out of your mouth. You actually have to say the words. And I think if you're in a spot where you've never committed to follow Christ, like God's found you where you're at and he's inviting you to follow him, then it's time to confess. Like, okay, I want to follow you, right? Respond in faith. Like, I'm ready to follow you. It's not some magic formula. You don't have to say the perfect words, but you need to like say out of your mouth, I believe Jesus and I want to follow him not just hold it in your gut. And for other people that are like stressed out and life's been rough and you're sitting here going like, I way identify more with Manoa. I want more information than the woman. Might be, it might be a time where you just need to go like confess, like I, I believe in Jesus. I trust you. I know following you and just leaning on you is the next best thing for me to do right now. That's the next right step. But you need to actually confess, like say it out loud. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.